0: of America's number one crime fighter, Batman. Yes, Batman, clad in the somber costume which has struck terror to the heart of many a swaggering denizen of the underworld. Batman, who even now is pondering the plans of a new assault against the forces of crime, a crushing blow against evil in which he will have the valuable aid of his young two-fisted assistant, Robin the Boy Wonder. They represent American youth who love their country and are glad to fight for it. Wherever crime raises its ugly head to strike with the venom of a maddened rattlesnake, Batman and Robin stand ready to fight them to the death. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, I gotta tell you, this morning, I'm feeling pretty good, because it is morning as I record all of this, and for breakfast, I decided to treat myself to breakfast tacos from Taco Cabana. You know, one of the kind of nice things about living in this. The great state of Texas is the food. You know? I mean, you hear uh, people who live in all of these kind of shitty other states who talk about how great the food is there, and you know, nine times out of ten, it's really nothing to write home about. But at least in Houston, I mean, guys, the restaurants that we have here, are some of the very best that you can find in the uh, in, in the whole country, you know. And I speak here of things like just take for example Tex-Mex, right? When you w- when you come right down to it, Taco Cabana is drive-through Tex-Mex, but it's still pretty fucking good, you know. I mean, I've had. Mm, let me just pick an example. Yeah, okay, okay. I've had Mexican food at least as they understand it, in the state of Colorado, and guys, yuck. I mean, there's this one time I talked to a native who said that his favorite dish from Taco Bell is Mexi Nuggets. The fuck are Mexi Nuggets? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that native Mexicans don't know what Mexi Nuggets are. This I do affirm. So, anyway. Taco Cabana. Breakfast tacos. Loved it. So, anyway. What I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And, evidently, food as well. So, hmm. This is a pretty dynamic podcast. What can I tell you? But, (sighs) lately, I've been in a serious Batman mood for reasons obvious and perhaps not so obvious. So, what I want to do with my time today this week, is basically work my way through yet another Batman comic. And honestly, guys, not just any Batman comic. This one is historic for reasons that are, again, obvious and perhaps not so obvious. For one thing, today's today's comic is Batman number 25, right? Now, there's an entire school of thought here that says I should preface my remarks by saying that this comes from Batman Volume 1, number 25. But the way I see it, there's only one volume of Batman that anybody needs to worry about, and everything else is just kind of an also-ran. So, in any case, though, this is for those of you who place a premium on accuracy. This is Batman Volume 1, number 25 and basically what it really comes down to is this comic book which to the best of uh my the research that i've that i was able to do is cover dated october of 1944 so kind of an interesting time both in batman's publication history and world history in general you know what with the fucking war and everything this comic, there's a limit to how much I can speak to the circumstances and climate in which it came out, because obviously I wasn't fucking born at the time. But what I can say, for absolute sure, is this comic... And I'm not even talking so much about this comic generally, Batman number 25. I can't really speak so much about the the comic in its totality, I suppose... Primarily, what my comments are going to be related to is the story in this uh, in this comic. It's called Knights of Navery. And this story was kind of an interesting little watershed for me when I was a kid as a budding young Batman fan. Basically, I first read Knights of Navery, this would have been probably near the end of 1989, or maybe early, early, early in 1990, right? And basically, the first time that I read this story, Knights of Navery, it was, it was reprinted in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Volume 1. And for those of you who aren't really familiar with The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, basically... That was this, it was sort of a compilation that attempted to cut through the glorious ice cream of Batman's entire publication history and select those stories that the compilers of this compilation deemed were the greatest Batman stories ever to be told, right? And this this volume ended up whether or not this was its purpose, I cannot say. But this volume really served as a, as an introduction to Batman in comics, because I'd seen the Tim Burton Batman movie quite a few times. Uh, when I when I first read this volume, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, the greatest Batman stories ever told, I'd seen the Tim Burton Batman movie from nineteen eighty nine quite a few times, but I didn't really know a whole lot about Batman, especially when it comes to comics, right? I mean, I liked the movie quite a lot, but, you know, I was very well aware of the fact that there's more to any comic book character than just the movie, you know? And so it was with great anticipation that I worked my way through uh, the greatest Batman stories ever told. And I don't know if these stories, all of these stories necessarily count as great, but a lot of them are really, really good. And what made Knights of Navery stand out, at least for me, was this notion of teaming up supervillains so that they can go up against Batman and Robin, right? Now, that was a, that was a very interesting idea in my eight-year-old, nine-year-old-ish imagination, right? And it seems, I don't know, it, it, it seems a little cute, I guess, looking back at it, that, wow, you know, the idea of pairing up villains had never occurred to eight-year-old Magnus before. Well, guys, here again, I must emphasize that I read Knights of Knavery* on the heels of having seen uh, the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film, But we were a long way off from from Batman Returns. And so, you know, the idea of teaming up supervillains in movies or God knows any other format these days, basically that's pretty much par for the course, you know? But at least when I read Knights of Knavery for the first time, I mean, that was like a new idea to me, you know? And I was kind of interested to see, you know, well... I guess a team-up between the Penguin and Joker, what would that be like, you know? Well, this story aspires to answer that question, you know? And like I say, I mean, this was such a revolutionary idea to me when I was a kid. And, I mean, I was relatively conversant with the idea of Batman and Superman teaming up, at least on occasion, You know, I I was familiar with with that concept, at least in the abstract, but the idea of teaming up supervillains, wow, now that's an idea, you know? And I must say, you know, considering the standards of eight-year-old Magnus, and further to that, considering the standards of comic book reading audiences circa 1944, I dare say this story doesn't disappoint. You know, it's about as big and sweeping as, let's face it, uh, a conveyor belt of Batman stories was likely to be at this time. And so, you know, overall, this was just, this was a a very formative time. You know, the late, I would say the latter portion of 1989 and the early, early, early portion of 1990, basically um, January to about... I don't know, probably around May or so. That was a very... That was a very inspired time for me, I suppose, as as a Batman fan, you know, because I was being exposed to so much stuff. I mean, my opinion is that if you can... If you give a kid who's starting to get into Batman, if you give him a copy of The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Volume 1, and I guess, just for shits and grins, probably Volume 2 as well, but, you know, to kind of replicate my own experience, if you give a kid who's somewhat aspiring to be a Batman fan a copy of The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, he's going to be well on his way to a relatively full appreciation of what Batman can be in comics, you know, and I think that between taking in the greatest Batman stories ever told, volume one, uh, watching the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film a bunch of times, and then watching the Adam West uh, Batman TV show a lot, that's not exactly especially these days, you know, that's not exactly the widest possible uh, range of influences that you could possibly have as a budding Batman fan. And indeed, I don't think it was even in 1989. But the point is, I was on my way, you know, and the greatest Batman stories ever told, Volume 1, is a major building block to all of that. And understanding that Batman has been different things at different times in history. And... Odds are he's going to be different things yet in the future, you know? And that's part of what makes the character work, you know? And Knights of Navery, it's not exactly the darkest Batman story, even probably that even that came out in 1944, you know? It's certainly not the darkest Batman story there's ever uh, that there's ever been. But it's also not the most, um, I don't know, lighthearted story either. I mean, in a weird kind of way, I would almost want to compare it to something like The Brave and the Bold, or perhaps Elements of Batman Forever, neither of which is dark, you know, in the killing joke sense of, you know, just gritty sort of darkness. But I I wouldn't say that Batman Forever and The Brave and the Bold and Knights of Knavery* are overly light hearted either, I mean they're kind of right there in that that sort of squishy middle ground where you've got a lot of flexibility. put it that way, you know there would be sillier Batman stories than this published in the nineteen forties, and this is eminently readable and apart from the art and elements of the story it's not it doesn't really come off all that dated, and I'll get more into that in just a little bit but for right now, I think I've probably introduced it enough. The story, as I say, is Knights of Knavery" from Batman number 25. Penciler is Jack Burnley. Inker is Jerry Robinson. Writer is Don Cameron. Letterer is George Russus. Story synopsis is as follows. After the Penguin is stopped from stealing the van... I'm going to try my best to pronounce this. The van Landorf... Or sorry... Van Landroff, emerald and thrown into prison once more by Batman and Robin, he bemoans his misfortune as the smartest crook in town, quote This attracts the attention of his new cellmate, the Joker, who mocks the Penguin's incompetence. The two men quickly develop a rivalry and decide that Gotham's underworld just isn't big enough for the two of them. Together, they escape prison and they agree on a wager, Whoever steals the Van Landrff em- uh, Emerald has the right to stay in Gotham. The loser has to leave. Upon hearing about the breakout, Batman and Robin cooperate with Mrs. Van Landroff to set a trap for the two arch criminals. As predicted, both the Jokers and the Penguins gangs uh, uh, appear at the Van Landroff house so as to steal the gem. The dynamic duo swoop down to arrest the two men, but desperation causes the Joker and the Penguin to work together. Though they both uh, fail to steal the Emerald, the Joker and the Penguin are able to escape Batman's clutches. More importantly, each of them now recognizes the other's talents, and they both agree to a full partnership. In less than a day, this new alliance buries Gotham under an unprecedented crime spree. When Batman and Robin attempt to capture the Joker and the Penguin again, they themselves are taken captive by a trick from the Penguin and brought to the arch-criminals' shared hideout. Both criminals are ecstatic, but they begin to argue again when they can't agree on how best to kill the bound and helpless dynamic duo. Batman taking advantage of their discord and respective egos, dares them into a shooting contest. Whoever can hit a vase from 25 paces is the superior criminal. Both the Joker and the Penguin easily accomplish the shot, but they fail to recognize Batman's real goal, getting a jagged vase shard so he and Robin can cut themselves free from their bindings. Upon being freed, the dynamic duo immediately beat the shit out of the two arch criminals, and then they arrest them. Furious, the Penguin and the Joker turn on each other once more, each blaming the other for his defeat. As they argue, an amused Batman reassures them that they're never going to be placed in the same cell ever again. The end. So, what did I think? Well, as I say, I first read this story when I was a kid, and the idea of... Batman's villains teaming up with each other, even on like a limited basis. I thought that idea had so much disco potential to it, you know? And yes, it would be fair to say that a lot of Batman movies have kind of run that idea into the ground. And it's actually to the point now where I kind of look back at Tim Burton's first Batman movie where There's really only one villain. I kind of look back at that as the good old days, back when uh, a comic book movie could get by with having only one villain and be probably the better for it, you know? And to me, this is just, it's a trope that it's just been overdone at this point, at least in movies, you know? And comics... Obviously, that's a little bit of a different matter, but this is a little bit of a gimmick that I think the movies are just way over-reliant upon. But like I say, when I first read this, you know, the idea of running that little shtick into the ground, that hadn't happened yet. And so as a result, I'd like to think I was able to sort of absorb this story on its own merits, you know, and just appreciate I guess, the novelty, as, you know, as it was intended, of the Joker and the Penguin teaming up together so that they can better challenge Batman. And I, I just liked that as a concept, you know? Because I kind of regarded the Joker and the Penguin as Batman's, probably his, mo- his foremost uh, enemies from his rogues gallery. And so it just seemed so obvious that I was surprised Kind of surprised at myself for not thinking of it myself, and so I just liked it, you know, just the just the concept of it. I liked, you know. But as I read this story, you know, well, actually, I'll, I'll circle back to that in just a sec. But you know, the story the story starts off kind of, uh, I believe the term is in media res, where we see the penguin making a run for it after trying to steal uh, Mrs. Van Landorf's uh, emerald. And basically, we're seeing, I guess, the conclusion of a of, of a different uh, penguin caper that Batman and Robin are able to foil, you know? And sure enough, you know, the penguin's making a run for it. He jumps off the house. Batman and Robin pursue him. Uh, they dive after him, crash into him. They crash land on the ground. They arrest the penguin, take him into custody. And... Because of the fact that, you know, this is a comic book published in 1944, you know, I think what we're supposed to infer is the Penguin has escaped from jail just to, to get to this point so that he can uh, steal what's-her-name's uh, emerald. This is a sort of a hard name to pronounce, Mrs. Van Landorf, because it's, it's uh, spelled L-A-N-D-O-R-P-F. So I assume, I'm supposed to pronounce that Mrs. Van Landorf, but I don't know. Anyway, it's a pain in the ass to pronounce, I'll tell you that. But anyway, just to get to Mrs. Van Landorf's house, what I think we're supposed to assume is the Penguin had to escape from prison to do that, right? And so, in all probability, after Batman and Robin arrest him, he was returned to prison, but he's also going to have to face... New criminal charges now, so that his uh, his sentencing in prison can be updated. you know, I guess to reflect let's see attempted burglary, breaking and entering, uh, general criminal mischief, and probably other things that we're that we're just not privy to, you know and so when this little caption box here says, a short while later at Gotham Penitentiary, What I think we're supposed to infer is that Penguin isn't going to stay there for too long because he's going to go back to court to face new charges now, you know? So at least that's the way it goes in my mind, but perhaps I'm overthinking all of this. But either way, basically what the story needs is a way for the Penguin and the Joker to end up in the same cell together and not spend pages and pages and pages, you know, crafting an overly elaborate story to get to that point. And so, whatever. I roll with it. So, uh, that's all on page one. Getting into page two, you know, what we see is the Penguin, for the first time, meeting the Joker. And what I like about this is there's believable conflict between the Penguin and the Joker, you know? They're not necessarily buddy-buddy with one another just because, hey, you're a crook and I'm a crook and we both hate Batman, so we're going to be best friends forever. No, it ain't like that, you know? They don't like Batman, but that the enemy of their enemy is not necessarily their friend in this case. You know, they pretty much lock horns with each other right away. You know, they talk a salty line of shit uh, to one another before what what they ultimately decide upon is a wager where whoever is able to steal the Van Landorf Emerald, that's the guy that gets to stay in Gotham City. The other one has to leave. And this is one of those stories that you wouldn't be able to tell it in such a clean and easy fashion now because of the fact that it's pretty much ironclad canon at this point that the Joker is criminally insane. And so as a result, the Penguin realistically would get sent to Blackgate Prison, while the Joker has got to go to Arkham Asylum, you know? So they're not likely to bump into one another after being incarcerated, you know? But those ideas were decades away from becoming continuity. And so, you know, in this story, it really is as simple as both of them ending up in the generically titled Gotham Penitentiary. And there they bump into one another, you know? And one of the things that this story basically requires you to believe in so that you can get into the rest of the story is that the Penguin and the Joker end up in the same prison cell and nobody thinks anything about it, you know? Now, I could see them being next door to one another or across from one another or just whatever, but the idea of the two of them ending up in the same cell at the same time... I don't know. I mean you you pretty much have to believe that because that's what the story needs to happen in order for everything else in the story to happen. But there's just no fucking way that they'd end up in the same cell with each other. That just doesn't happen. Anyway, but like I say, they agree to the wager. And so after that, it's just a simple matter of escaping from prison, right? And to do that, they pretty much have to take advantage of the stupidest guard in the entire prison block, who happens to be standing outside of their cell at that very moment. And I don't know why, but this just seems like such a Silver Age thing where somebody's just standing around talking to himself. The guard says out loud, Ho hum, what a dull job this is playing nurse to a collection of crooks. Nothing ever happens around here. Guess I'll go see whether those two punks have swept their cell yet, and then... Because at that moment, he gets taken out from behind by the Joker, who smacks him upside the head with his own set of keys, which I guess these keys weigh a lot, because he's able to knock the guard out with one smack to the head with this giant key ring. And... Then after that, the very next panel that we see on page four shows uh, the Penguin and the Joker both making like Roadrunner and just hauling balls out uh, out of the prison. And what I kind of have to assume is that to cover their escape, they would let a bunch of people out of their cells so that the Penguin and the Joker, rather than being the only targets in an otherwise empty space. They're basically creating a target-rich environment, which, at least in theory, is going to make it easier for them to escape. That's nowhere in the comic, but I'm just trying to think of how best you could make this work in a way that doesn't make the guards at Gotham Penitentiary look kind of retarded. And so the only thing that really makes sense to me is they let a shitload of convicts out of their cells and basically let them overwhelm the guards while they, meaning the Penguin and the Joker, make a run for it, you know? So to me, that's just what makes the most, the most sense. So anyway, elsewhere at the bottom of page four, uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson hear about what's going on with all of this, and they're reading it in a newspaper, right? Whereas if this story was done... Gee, probably any time from the 60s going forward, they would hear about it on TV. And then if, if this story was done today, in all probability, I mean, Batman probably has uh, Twitter and news updates sent to his phone so that he can find out about uh just weird goings on related to Gotham City on his phone and not have to depend upon the mainstream media to get his, or at least not the mainstream media, but I guess not depend upon a newspaper or not depend upon the TV to get all of his news, you know, basically to get up to the minute information. Yeah, I could see him using, uh, setting up a phony baloney Twitter account under the name John Smith and then arrange it so that um, urgent news bulletins are sent to his iPhone, and then, you know, he works based on that. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Coke here. Hmm. Anyway, Twitter. That's today, though. In the 1940s, you know what? A newspaper may have been Batman's only news outlet, so, anyway, who's to say? <clears throat> Now at the bottom of page 4 there's a little bit of See, I don't know if this is an if this is an official rule of comics, but basically what we see is some visual discontinuity going on here. At the bottom of page 4, this is uh, in panels 5, 6, and 7. In panel five, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson are their eye lines basically point to the point to the right. And panel six, their eye lines, again, point to the right. In panel seven, though, we get a close-up of the Batmobile as Batman and Robin cruise around Gotham City. And basically their eye lines, it's it's implied that their eyelines are facing to the left. So panel five, eyelines to the right. Panel six, eyelines to the right. Panel seven, eyelines to the left. You know, and... I've always assumed that a comic book artist is going to want to keep the action moving in... Basically, keep it moving in a consistent direction. And, like I say, there was already a... It had already been set up that their eye lines were facing right, and then out of nowhere they go left. And it's just, it's a little bit jarring, you know? That's the point. It's a little bit draw uh, jarring to to see that. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, if somebody had just flipped, you know, this part of the, basically flipped this one panel, that would have fixed it right then and there. But that obviously never happened. But it would be an easy thing to fix, is what I'm saying. So, anyway... And it happens a little bit again on uh, on a page five. Batman and Robin meet with vis- Mrs. Van Landorf and basically explain the situation to her. And again, I mean, they're just all over the place, you know? Uh, Batman's on the left part of the panel. Mrs. Van Landorf is on the right. Then in the next panel, Mrs. Van Landorf is on the right and Batman's on the left. And I don't know. It just It, it just kind of shifts around a little too much. And... It just—it's one of those things that, on the one hand, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but on the other hand, you know, there are there are some, I guess, fundamentals of uh, graphic storytelling that just aren't really being—they're not being—they're not readily on display in this story, and maybe that's the best way to put it. So, I don't know. Another another way of looking at it, though, is that in 1944, the idea of telling original stories in comic books, this was still a relatively avant-garde idea. You know, that was kind of pioneered with Superman. And then, you know, Batman followed through, and then there was a slew of of, uh, original comics after that. But the idea of telling a story graphically along the lines of an original comic book, that was still a new idea in 1944. So it's entirely possible that a lot of the storytelling tropes and conventions of, you know, the way comics ought to be done in a way that, is, that makes them as readable as possible to the, to the highest number of people possible, a lot of those rules might not have been figured out yet in the early to mid-1940s, you know? So, maybe I should I should cut everybody involved here a little bit of slack. I'm just saying that if this was a modern comic, I would deduct points for this. Because, I'm sorry, you know, all of these decades of knowing what makes for a good comic book, there really are no excuses today. Whereas in 1944, you know, you gotta let some things slide a little bit, you know? So, anyway, getting to the bottom of page 5, though... Basically, what Batman does is he hatches a plan where he and Mrs. Van Landorf uh, plant a phony baloney announcement in the newspaper. The idea here is they're trying to use a little bit of reverse psychology against the penguin and the Joker. And this is all an attempt to smoke them out into the open, right? Batman plants a phony baloney news item in the paper saying that Mrs. Van Landorf is going to wear uh her uh her uh, famous emerald to uh uh this this big ritzy fashion show and they do this secure in the knowledge that the Joker and the penguin are gonna recognize this as a complete bullshit news item and sure enough the penguin recognizes this as it's basically a trap. You know, Batman wants them to go to the fashion show so that uh, he can apprehend and then uh, take the Penguin into custody there. And so, you know, Batman pretty much called it. Penguin recognizes recognizes the fact that this is bullshit news. The real Emerald is actually going to be hidden safe and secure in Mrs. Van Landorf's house. And so all we need to do is break in there and steal the thing for ourselves. So pretty much Batman called it, you know, sometimes reverse psychology does work. And when, when we get to the top of page six, this is actually a very telling moment for the penguin. Uh, Basically one of his thugs assumes that, Hey, I guess we're going to have to go to the fashion show because that's where the Emerald's going to be. And the penguin explains he, uh, what he says is, such stupidity. Don't you know that one doesn't wear cord emeralds with tailored clothes? It simply isn't done. My guess is that the Batman had this no- notice inserted. And from there, you know, Penguin explains why exactly it is that he understands this is a complete bullshit news item. So, Basically what this tells us is two things. Number 1, the penguin for everything else we could say about the guy, he's really smart, you know. He recognizes bullshit when he sees it. And so he knows better than to go to the fashion show because he assumes that Batman's going to be is going to be there waiting for him, right? But the other thing is, you know, why he recognizes that is because of the fact that as he says, you don't wear fancy schmancy emeralds with tailored, uh, tailored fashion for whatever reason. Right. And one of the things about the penguin is he's always had a taste for, uh, high society, for fine living, for the, uh, Gotham city, uh, upper crust, the 1%, whatever you want to call them. That's, that's the group with whom the penguin identifies most strongly, you know? and it makes sense i mean on some level he's one of them or at least he wants to be one of them and so he knows about the ins and outs of their world you know he knows about how the upper crust basically you know what the taboos are with uh high society you know he understands all of that and so he knows that there's no way that mrs van landorf is going to wear the emerald with those clothes i mean with uh, ultra high fashion clothes. And so, you know, whether or not that's true, it's true in this story, even if it's not necessarily true in real life, I have no idea, but it speaks to who the character is, you know, who this guy is and what he wants, you know? And I realize that a lot of comics, especially at this time in, in history, They were long on plot and relatively short on characterization. But every now and then, you'd get little tidbits like this where the character would would explain something in such a way that it says so much about who they are as people, you know? And you'd get little tidbits like that once in a while. So uh, to kind of skip ahead in the story here a little bit, you know the Joker also recognizes that the newspaper announcement is total horseshit. Now it doesn't explain the story; never explains how he knows that. You know, maybe he found you know some other some other reason for rejecting this as kind of bullshit news. But you know, irrespective, you know the the Joker and the Penguin both see through this. The Penguin, for the reasons uh, you know that I've that, that I've already said, it doesn't really say why the Joker rejected this newspaper announcement, but I'd be kind of interested to know, you know, what is it about this newspaper announcement that uh, set off the Joker's bullshit filter? You know, what was in there that basically opened his eyes, you know? So I don't know. Irrespective though, the Joker and the Penguin both show up at Mrs. Van Landorf's home after which they pretty much waste no time attacking each other. And their gangs attack each other. And so Batman and Robin choose that moment to swoop into action and start cracking some skulls, you know. And one of the things that comes out of this is that, yeah, the Penguin and the Joker, for a time, they're beating the shit out of each other. But once Batman shows up, pretty much it doesn't really take uh, the Penguin and the Joker very long to start working together. Again, for for mutual benefit, you know, helping the Joker escape means that it's going to help the Penguin escape too, and vice versa, you know, just like it was in the prison. And so here again, you know, the Joker and the Penguin have, within the context of this story, they have compelling reasons to trust each other and to work together and all of that. And so like superficially, I mean, these are characters that shouldn't want to have anything to do with each other, but they're constantly confronted by circumstances that say, hey, maybe we should work together. You know, maybe we should team up. Maybe this is the only way to to bring down uh, Batman. And so I kind of like that, you know. That is a very insightful approach to take with a story that by all rights really should be schlock and kind of makes it—I'm using it in quotation marks here— but. It makes it believable, you know? I don't mean realistic, but believable, you know? It's believable that uh, in the face of all the weird shit that's happened in this story, yeah, the the Penguin and the Joker, they do see the wisdom in, in uh, uh, pairing up. And so from there, getting into page eight, what we basically see is an epic crime wave, the likes of which Gotham City has never seen before. And when you think about it, I mean, I guess mixing the penguins' brains with the Joker's kind of sixth sense of humor, yeah, that it stands to reason that the city isn't immediately capable of dealing with that. You know, and that would catch them off guard. And it also stands to reason that Commissioner Gordon's gonna be going a little ballistic over all of this, trying basically trying to to keep up without looking without being made to look like an idiot. You know, so I don't know. I like this. I I like the I, I wish we got you know what, I realize that this story only has so many pages allotted to it, but I wouldn't mind having, you know, a page or two or three extra where we could see, you know, some of the crimes and stuff that uh, the Penguin and the Joker carry out. You know, now obviously that never happens, but I think it'd be kind of interesting to see that. But as it is, we, we basically have to imagine a lot of that stuff for ourselves. And I got to tell you, you know, I kind of like the idea of comics that give you enough story, you know. They don't necessarily give you the whole story, but they give you enough story. You know, so what you can maybe infer from all of this, if you wanted to, is that the Penguin and the Joker had a lot of near misses with Batman and Robin. You know, they had a chance to develop a real partnership with one another. And that partnership, at least for a while, was the only thing that kept either of them out of prison. You know, just, just because of the fact that Batman and Robin hadn't really gotten the hang yet of how best to deal with a penguin joker team up you know if you want to if you want to infer that from what we see in this story here you've got a leg to stand on you know so i like the idea of a story that opens itself to so many levels of interpretation you know you can use a little bit of imagination on what has, or for that matter, what hasn't happened in this story, you know? And I just, I like that idea, you know, the idea of all of that. It, to me, that's the mark of, well, number one, I guess it's just a sign of the times, you know, when this story came out, you pretty much only had a couple of pages to get to the point. But, you know, the strength of that is, you know, the stuff that you're not seeing, it can be so much more uh, dramatic and entertaining because of the fact that you're not seeing it. And so you're filling in the blanks with uh, story ideas that seem brilliant because they're your own ideas, you know? So anyway, I just dig that is what I'm saying, you know, the, uh, the vagueness of some aspects of this story. So anyway, getting uh, to the bottom of page eight, basically what the Penguin does here is still a $50,000 payroll. And he makes his uh, getaway, on what I assume are some kind of specialty balloons. You know, these aren't just uh, conventional, conventional, plain old, regular balloons. These are basically, probably uh, Joker's gimmicky balloons that have, maybe they're not actually balloons. Maybe they have some kind of secret jet propulsion attached to them or something. Fuck if I know. But these aren't just, you know, regular plain old balloons. They carry the penguin off after he snatches the satchel full of the $50,000 payroll. They carry the penguin uh, off into the air and bring him past uh, Commissioner Gordon's office window, where Batman and Robin just happen to be hanging around. So they dive out the window. Each of them grabs one of the penguin's legs. And at that point, they're, they're all riding off into the distance together. And... The Joker's men bring the penguin down by uh, shooting each of the balloons. And so the penguin, Joker, or sorry, the penguin, Batman, and Robin all crash into a. It looks like one of those old timey. Uh, they call it a net, but it's not really a net. It's almost like a giant cushion that uh, firemen used to carry around in, in their fire trucks. Like if somebody had to jump off a, a building from like the second or third floor well, this would break their fall, you know, without killing them, I mean. And that's what the Penguin, Batman, and Robin land on. And then they get overpowered by the Jokers and the Penguin's uh, goons, I guess. At this point, these goons are probably working for the both of them. So anyway, Batman and Robin get overpowered by them. And then from there, they get taken back to the Penguin and the Joker's kind of shared hideout. And you can see it on page 10. There's this it looks like it's a coat of arms that has a, a, a penguin uh, symbol on it, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, on one part of it. And then on the other part of this coat of arms, it's, um, it looks like a, a Joker playing card. And so these two guys have well and truly committed to teaming up uh, together, at least for the foreseeable future enough so that they can have their own coat of arms made or so it seems. So anyway, now from there, they basically argue with each other over how best to execute Batman and Robin. It's not a matter of should they do it or should they not? They know they want to, they just haven't, they're arguing between the, between themselves over how best to do it. Right. And so Batman, he pretty much takes the only way out that was probably open to him at the time. And he basically says, well, When they turn and ask him, you know, hey, who is the best crook in this town? Batman says, well, neither of you are all that great because there's this one guy stuttering Sam and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And basically finds a way to trick the Penguin and the Joker into placing uh, vases on top of Batman and Robin's heads so that they'll shoot the vases. And then Batman and Robin can uh, cut themselves free with the shards from the vase and this is one of those wacky only in comic book types of ideas that it would never work in real life. But whatever, works pretty well in a comic. And I guess that's about the most you can ask for. And so Batman and Robin cut themselves free, beat the piss out of the Penguin and the Joker. And honestly, I mean, when you think about it, this sequence where Batman and Robin beat the hell out of uh the two of them. It actually goes on by golden age standards. It actually goes on for uh for a little while. It it lasts for it looks like a page and a half here. And when you think about it, a page and a half for a fight scene, that's pretty extravagant, guys. Uh a lot of times with these comics, the most you can hope for is like three or four panels tops. And that's not what we see. You know, it's a page-and-a-half showdown. And it should tell you something about, I guess, how seriously uh, this story needed some <laughs> additional action, I, I I suppose. So, anyway. So, the end ends happily with the Penguin and Joker uh, put back in prison. And then, at the end, the very last panel here... Uh, Bruce Wayne says to Dick Grayson, he says, And from the list found in the hideout, the police made short work of rounding up the rest of the gang, which means that Gotham ought to be quiet for a while. And uh, Dick replies uh, to that, Hmm, not too quiet, I hope. And that's the end of Knights of Knavery. And, you know, it's the rare Golden Age uh, Batman story that I'd kind of like to see redone you know, whether it's as a new comic book today, which, let's face it, you already know that's going to be like five or six issues long because that's just comics these days. Or maybe see it adapted as an animated film or even a live-action film. I mean, I think that could be kind of fun too, you know? And I just... This is one of those stories that, you know, it's fine in its place and I love it, but I can't help thinking that, you know a modern sort of update to it, you know, not to make it all dark and, and violent and bloody, not that, but just sort of like an expanded sort of retelling of it or an adaptation of it or something, that could be actually really interesting, you know? Um, I could see a, a bunch of different ways where you could uh, turn something like this into one hell of an animated film and release it straight to video. And, you know, I'd be interested in seeing that movie, if nothing else, you know, just something that's, you know, kind of all ages, sort of G-rated, um, I guess, to allow for everybody to get into it. You know, just a just a fun, enjoyable Batman and Robin adventure. And I don't know, I, I just think this story, I'm not trying to insult it or damn it with faint praise by saying, you know, it's fine and it's time. No, this is a fine story. I enjoy it even now. But, you know, just the idea of revisiting it and expanding upon it. I don't know. I think that that has some merit to it. So, anyway. And that, I think, is pretty much it for Knights of Knavery. Now, I guess as a general sort of thing here, I don't know when, but at some point in the future, I do want to tackle other stories from the greatest Batman stories ever told. don't really know when, or for that matter, if I'll ever have a chance to do it, but I would like to, at least at some point, you know? So, That's the idea. But, um, you know, either way, I just really dig this story. And, you know, I don't think that you'll be able to find, you know, a copy of Batman number 25 for all that cheap. But this story's been reprinted a fair number of times, so finding a reprint of it shouldn't be all that difficult. So I do recommend... (coughs) Excuse me. I do recommend, honestly, everything from... The greatest Batman stories ever told. I recommend tracking down this volume and, you know, just giving it a test drive. You know, I think you'll really enjoy it, but especially Knights of Navery. This is just a fun and enjoyable Batman story, and I really dig it. So, anyway. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. So, as to next week, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be talking about just yet. I've got a couple of ideas, but honestly, nothing's really set in stone yet. Anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So, Bye, everybody. I will see you next week.